everybody. This is Flea Market Fantasy number 17. This is our special Christmas episode. And this is your co-host, Mike Allen. As always, I'm joined by... Michael Dell of the LCS Hockey Radio Show. That's right. And this week, we are reviewing yet another comic that I had as a kid and I read a million times, including every Christmas. This is <laughs> Daredevil number 253. Merry Christmas, Daredevil, by Anne Nocenti well, and John Romita Jr. Well, well, technically, Mike L., I believe the title, yeah, this is from 1988, but I believe the title is actually Merry Christmas, Kingpin. You know, like, I noticed that, yes, yeah. you're right. On the cover, it has Merry Christmas above the Daredevil title, but inside, it's Merry Christmas, Kingpin. So, This is true. This technicality. is true. Uh, now, Mike L., the one thing I've learned about you from doing this show, you love the holidays because... Every holiday, you're you're picking special issues. So far, Halloween and Christmas, yes. <laughs> yes. And, and right before we started recording, we, we got into a real deep discussion about Boxing Day. But yeah. we'll save that. We'll leave that alone. Philosophical. Uh, <laughs> but and so next week on the show, it's also another one of your picks. And we're doing another Christmas issue? Absolutely. <laughs> it's another comic that I read every Christmas when I was a kid, Okay. Because so. this is interesting because personally, Michael, uh, like I grew up on classic TV as well. I'm a classic TV scholar. I'm looking at my diploma on the wall right now. Okay. But I hated the Christmas episodes. Why? Why? Because yeah. <laughs> they're all just terrible. And, oh. and the worst thing is when you're watching old reruns on TV and they, they, a Christmas episode pops up like in the middle of June. That's the worst. You know, I don't want to watch that in June. So I, I can tolerate them when Christmas is here, but in general, very special Christmas episodes of TV shows suck. Okay, okay. Let me ask you, uh, what is your opinion of It's a Wonderful Life? Love it. Okay, okay. It's not really can... a Christmas movie. It's, well, uh, it's set at Christmas time, but it really has nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> you know? well, that's a discussion for another time, but I think it, it, it's, it's about the spirit of the holidays and of Christmas, I think. But the, the, There's only one uh, acceptable Christmas special, and that's Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. I don't even know what the hell that is. What, what, is, it? what is it? Emmett Otter. Uh, Jim Henson. Uh, oh. Late 70s. Uh, the little uh, live-action Christmas special with puppets. <laughs> and they're wow. otters. I can't believe you don't know Emmett Otter's Jug no, Band Christmas. never heard of it. Oh my god, I'm looking it up right now. This is a 1977 TV movie. Yeah, I grew up on it. Like I watched wow. it. All. It's the greatest thing ever. It's possible so, I saw it but just didn't know what it was called. Oh, you would remember if you saw it. But anyway, <laughs> maybe there's an Emmett Otter comic book we can do. Uh, yeah. but I'm a little uh, worried about celebrating holidays and Christmas. I don't enjoy it. But <laughs> I did enjoy this pick this week because you picked Daredevil. Yes. And, and, this, and Daredevil, this was right when I was reading Daredevil as a kid. I missed Frank Miller as a kid, so this yes. is when I started reading Daredevil. So I'm, I'm the same with you. I, uh, Daredevil's my favorite guy. All right. And, and this is the first time we're actually repeating a title on the show because issue episode three of this podcast, we did a Daredevil That's that true. Frank Miller drew but did not write. So I, I can't remember the first issue of Daredevil I purchased, but it was during this run. Okay. Because I I miss I miss the Frank Miller stuff too, uh, like like Born Again was the big Born Again series Frank Miller did. It was from like two twenty seven to two thirty three. Right. So this was, what is this two fifty three? 
So this, we're like uh, yeah. 20 issues after that. Right. I, so, but this, I can't remember. I'm trying to think what the first book I would have purchased. I don't know. But anyway, I had this entire run with Anacenti and John Romita Jr. And so, I, yeah, I loved it very much. Yes, as a kid. Me too. me too, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's so, I mean, there's such a Innocenti or Innocenti. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but I, I Innocenti. Innocenti. Yeah. You sure? Yeah, because I've been watching a lot of interviews with her, and I've been. And she says Innocenti. Yeah, that's how they always introduce. Okay, her. okay. So okay, well, I'll I'll concede. Um, yeah. But here's the thing: is that um, some people don't like her writing. They think it's too preachy. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't think her dialogue is terribly realistic, but I think oh. that. She's always got something to say, and she doesn't come from a comic book background at all. Like, when she got into the industry, as far as I know, she had zero background in comics. And I think that's Correct. good, because she doesn't write like anyone else. She doesn't write like the typical Marvel writer. I think that's what I like about her, you know? Yeah, we'll get into her stuff later, but uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Right. She, she did not even know any about anything about superheroes until she started working at Marvel. So, right. Yeah. All right, well, let, well, let's get into the plot here, Michael. Sure. Uh, Daredevil 253, 1988. Uh, where does it open up with this, Michael? Take so it away. opens up with this gang of hoodlums terrorizing <laughs> the well, streets. There's only well, two of them. So is that okay, a gang? Just, well, arguably, arguably. A group, a pair, a pair of hoodlums. A pair, maybe. A pair of hoodlums, yeah. A duo. Tearing up the streets here in New York, causing mayhem, knocking things over. And the first thing that happens is, is they're noticed by a kid who's actually a recurring character in the book called Eight Ball, and he eight notices. Ball. Yeah, I love Eight Ball. I always remember Eight Ball. <laughs> yeah, I want to punch Eight Ball in the jeans. Really? Oh, I was <laughs> in the jeans. I always liked Eight Ball. So as they're going by and knocking over garbage cans and causing mayhem, Eight Ball notices them, and he's sort of admiring them because they're so fearless and everyone's scared of them. Blah blah blah. And so these guys come in and they mug this, um, what are they called? Like a Santa Claus, uh, uh, like a... Yeah, Salvation Army Santa. Right, Salvation Army Santa. And then another guy comes in and tries to intervene, but they knock him out and then they take off. But this eight ball kid is is like... And it's funny because it's some pretty awkward dialogue, but he's like, they ain't afraid of nothing. Guess I better help this hurt guy. Wish, yes. I, could wish I could ride with him but nobody pushes them around. Wonder if this guy's dead. It's almost like <laughs> Gollum. Yeah. He's got two different personalities and they're switching back and forth. But anyway, <laughs> sure. it's cool. Yeah, it, it's, not, it's not, again, not realistic, but it gets the point across. And well, then, well, Michael, let, let me explain uh, who those hoodlums are, by the way, the two guys okay. around are causing trouble. Their name, uh, they're, they're called the Wild Boys. Yes. <laughs> the Wild Boys. And this is their first appearance. And uh, you got uh, Spit is one of them. <laughs> It's a great name. Spit and Jet are their names. I love it. No, I'm trying to remember which is which. Do you remember which is Spit and which is yeah. Jet? Spit is the darker-skinned guy, and Jet is the like pasty-faced guy with the long hair. Yes, uh, <clears throat> Spit. I'm so confused. Wait, wait. who did you say Jet is? Oh, wait. Yeah, the, the, the darker-skinned guy is it's Spit. Uh, spit. Okay. Yeah. So Jet kind of looks jaundice. I'm concerned yeah. for his liver health. Yeah. He uh, he looks yellow, and he's got a lot of uh, crazy hair, and baggy pants. Yeah, he's really skinny. Uh, but this is the first appearance of the Wild Boys, 
Are, are you familiar? Well, obviously you're familiar with them if you read this run. They, yeah. they, they pop up a couple other times okay. later on. Um, I am currently rereading this run, but I haven't got past this issue. So, well, a little bit later from this, uh, the my beloved Typhoid Mary. Ah, yes. Uh, she she gathers up a bunch of his villains, mm. and they all attacked her and beat them down. And the Wild Boys are in that group. Nice. But um, yeah, they're just normal dudes. Right. They're not like superheroes or anything. Um, they're just dudes. So right. I don't know. Uh, not a huge fan yeah. of the Wild Boys. You know, <laughs> but you know, this is a this is an interesting time at Marvel because not only like was Daredevil kind of becoming more realistic, but even in the X Men, the villains of the X Men in this time at this time were not like typical supervillains. It was more like the Marauders and the Reavers, right? And they they kind of had more realistic names and like they were less supervillainy. Like they didn't have costumes and capes and stuff like that. So I think that was just the trend at the time. Oh well, I don't know. The Marauders were kind of decked out and. <laughs> Maybe the not, but the the Reavers. Remember the Reavers? Weren't they all kind of half cyborg, half yeah? Man? They're half robot, half yeah. robot, right? Yeah, but they're like punk rock robots from right. Australia. I think, yeah, I think that was kind of the the style of the day. Um, also, you mentioned Eight Ball. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Michael, do you know where? Uh, there's also a a young girl in this book who's featured prominently named Darla. Yes. Now, do you know where they first premiered Eight Ball and Darla? Well, I'm assuming it was in Daredevil. Or was it you're not assuming, Daredevil? You're assuming incorrectly. Really? Uh, they, they belong to a, a pack of street boarders called the Fat Boys. Yes. They're all like, how old are these kids? Like nine, ten? Yeah, around that, yep. Yeah, they're little kids. They actually premiered in Longshot, issue number four, 1985. You know what? I read that a couple years ago, and I think I remember coming across that, but I forgot. Yeah. Yes, Darla was more prominent in that. I, don't, I only read like one issue of Longshot. Okay. I only add one of them. So I should go back and read it again. Uh, but Darla, I guess, falls in love kind of with Longshot. Like she loves him. Okay. Uh, for, and, but then, I don't know, it's an involved story. Uh, like as a little kid loves like a uh, TV star. You know what I mean? Like, sure, sure. That's kind of. Um, so uh, their first appearance in Daredevil is issue 238. 238. Okay. So look at that. Uh, 15 issues before this. Now, I'm not a fan of kids. Okay. You know? <laughs> I, I have no issue with kids, so. <laughs> I, I can watch your kids fall off bikes all day. I don't care. Uh, that's a Letterkenny quote. Do you okay. watch Letterkenny, Michael? No, I don't. Nope. You call yourself a Canadian. You'll find there's a, there's a lot of things I do that are un-Canadian. Yeah, anyway. All right. So, yeah, kids are the worst. Um, so that would be my problem <laughs> with this issue is it's very kid-centric. Uh, with Eight Ball and Darla. But um, anyway. That's one of my favorite things about it. But anyway, see, <laughs> I, guess I just love the, the supporting cast that Ando Senti introduces. I just think they're all so cool. And, you know, yeah. and, and we'll get to the status quo later, like the supporting cast. But yeah, but you hate kids. So yeah. Yes, you. I hate kids and I hate the supporting cast. <laughs> okay. But all right. Um, so where'd we leave off? Uh, the, the kid thought the one guy was dead that uh, Jet elbowed in the face or spit right. elbowed. I don't know. So then what happens, Michael? So then we then we cut over to Daredevil, kind of watching things as transpire. He's standing at the top of this building. And then he jumps down and has a conversation with um, uh, 8-Ball about this guy. 
and he's basically trying to help the guy and he can tell from the conversation that eight ball secretly admires these wild boys and so yeah he, he heard him talk plus he can also tell like his heart rate you know exactly. gets excited when he's talking about him you know so yeah right and he's like so you think they were pretty cool huh and eight ball's yeah. like well uh no you'd like to run with them huh i, I just met uh how did he know? How does he see into my head? See what I'm thinking? Because he doesn't know that he has a radar sense and he can hear heartbeats and stuff like that, right? Yeah, all the senses. We should also mention 8-Ball got his name. He was at, he was originally called Butch. And really? And uh, he got a helmet with an 8-Ball, like a billiard ball on it. It's not because he likes to do heroin. Okay, okay. That okay, is not true. I have a so, question for you. Yes. You know, because I, I didn't even look, have to look this up, obviously, where these two names, Butch and Darla, came from. Uh, it sounds like the little rascals or something. Exactly. Yeah, our gang. Absolutely. That's what yeah. they have to be named after them. Like as soon as I saw Darla, I'm like, oh yeah, that's our gang for sure. Anyway. So he also has an eight ball jacket. Right. So this kid, he's something. And we should mention these kids are kind of like, uh, uh, they're not orphans necessarily, but they come from troubled homes. Oh yeah, they they actually mention that. Like they kind of make make fun of each other. Um, like, oh, your dad's a junkie and your mom's a drunk. So yeah, they're unfortunately these are these come from tough uh, families and tough neighborhoods, so, right? So these little kids hang out together on the streets in New York, uh, right? With their skateboards and stuff. Right. Although, although it is nice to know that even though they they come from such dire circumstances and they're kind of ne'er do wells, <laughs> that they wear their knee pads, elbow pads, and helmets when they skate. It is nice, yeah. Yeah, it's a good message for the kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. It's also funny because John Romita Jr., God love him, but he's not the greatest at drawing kids. And so they, like, they don't look quite in proportion when they're standing there. They look almost like midgets. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I won't, I won't go any further with that. But, um, yeah, they look kind of right. odd. But anyway, I don't know if that's the correct term. Maybe little person is the correct term. But anyway. It's the correct term. <laughs> okay. So anyway. Cancel so Mike L. Yeah, there you go. Cancel Mike L. And so anyway, so then, so then, um, eight ball goes back to hang out with, um, Ralph. I, oh, I forgot about Ralph and, uh, Darla. And so right away he starts, you know, making fun of Darla and hitting Darla. And, and then she's talking about his skateboard and how much she likes it. And he kind of knocks her off and then they kind of fight a little bit back and forth and make fun of each other. And then they take off and kind of leave her in the dust. But talk about his really cool skateboard, Mike. What, what's the design of a skateboard? It's got a... <laughs> It's got a guitar on it with like angel wings behind it. <laughs> yes, pretty and cool. it says eight ball underneath. Right, it. it's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I was never into skateboarding. Were you? No, no, I never. I couldn't even stand up on one. So. Exactly. Yeah, me too. I had friends that could do like the tricks and all that. I didn't remember what they were called, but whatever. They were into that. I wasn't. So anyway, so then um, there's a really cool scene where the cop is now. There's a cop at the scene where this guy has been mugged. And he says to him, uh, he's like, uh, you know, it be Christmas Eve and all, most of yeah. the force have family, so <laughs> we're a little short on manpower tonight. Do you think you could? And Daredevil says, no problem, officer. Consider them history. So he's talking about the wild boys. Yeah, and let me tell you something. I'm a son. Uh, my father was a police officer. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, and let me tell you from experience, they don't give a fuck about their families. Yeah. Which, no, I don't mean the cops. I mean, my dad cared about his family, obviously. Yeah. I mean, the people that make their schedules. They yes. don't care. Yes. You know, it's right. not like, oh, you have family? You're not, you don't have to work tonight. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> Especially in New York City. That's exactly. not how it's going to work. 
Yeah. <laughs> the higher ups do not care if the police officers have families. But anyway. Stretching. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Taking some artistic license there. So anyway, so then, um, so basically, so eight ball goes off with Ralph. They take off. And then he's still kind of thinking to himself, there's that look again. He Like he knows what I've been thinking. Like he knows what, when I've been bad. Well, I don't care. He thinks I'm so bad, I might as well be really bad. Uh-oh, right? Yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, I know. I just said, look out. You know, oh, I, okay, okay. Yeah. So then we cut back to Daredevil. And this is where it gets really cool because at the, we, have, we should establish that at this point, as we said earlier, this is after Born Again. And so Matt Murdock no longer has his license to practice law. So he's not a lawyer. So he's kind of running this... Not like what would you? It's like a, not a soup kitchen, but it's like a like a, a like a community center, maybe. Or? Yeah, yeah, for like for people who are drug addicts and on the street and just you know low income, and so he goes back to hang out with them, and he and in the past few issues he's been because I've been reading them he's been um, consulting people with like legal matters and stuff like that. And so someone has told him he's not allowed to do that anymore. He's going to be charged and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, they're kind of worried it's going to get shut down. But anyway, so this is basically just them all hanging out and, um, you know, talking about Christmas. And, and it kind of goes from there later. But, yeah, for now, we're just kind of introduced to everybody in the status quo. You know, he's talking with, um, what's her name, Karen Page there. Yeah, his also, girlfriend, Karen Page. Yeah, who's also helping out with this stuff. And, Michael, here's a th something you probably don't. Uh, recognized as a Canadian, okay. but in the scene where he uh, he walks in with a Christmas tree and they're all excited, and uh, there's a shot uh, they show a fella standing there in a looks like a football jersey with a collar, and okay. it's uh, it's bright yellow and it says Taylor and fifty six on the back. Now, Mike, oh, are you aware of a fellow named Lawrence Taylor? Uh, actually, not no. <laughs> all right, he's probably the greatest defensive player ever in the history of American football. Really. And, uh, yeah, and he was very popular in New York City. Well, this is 88, so yeah, he was still around there. And they won a Super Bowl in 86, and his name, uh, his number is 56. So they're clearly indicating that this is a Lawrence Taylor shirt, but it's bright yellow, and that is not really... Oh, so that's incorrect. Okay. I yes, see. that is incorrect. They're blue, blue, red, and white. So yeah. So someone didn't tell the colorist. Well, I think they maybe they didn't want to make it. Lawrence Taylor because oh. they'd get sued or something, but yet it's clearly Lawrence Taylor. You sure. know? So, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, just wow. a little, little, uh, interesting note. <laughs> I just thought it was completely random. I never would have noticed that. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Like why go out of your way to make it? And they even have giants on the front. I know. Yeah. I just noticed that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, maybe the color is just totally screwed up, made a bright yellow for some reason. I don't know. Anyway. So, yeah, so then we cut over to the Kingpin, <clears throat> and we have an interesting scene. Uh, first of all, yeah, we'll talk about the art later, but I love the way John Romita Jr. draws the Kingpin. I was going to say the exact same thing. I was just going to say I love how he does the oh, Kingpin, yeah, because he he's got, like, like, his body is enormous. Uh, his arms and legs are enormous, and his head's kind of small. Right. And I, <laughs> it's great. It, it, yeah, like John Romita Jr. is so good at drawing bulky characters, and this is like obviously one of the most the bulkiest, right? Because if um, you go back, if you go back in the days of like uh, John Buscema and uh, how they used to draw the Kingpin, and even John Romita Sr., they would have him with an enormous head and like a squat body, right? Um, 
like even when they tell you like the how to draw comics the Marvel way, the John Buscema instructional on how to draw sure. comics, they use the Kingpin as a an example of how when you can because the, the average superhero figure is supposed to be like eight and a half heads tall for a superhero. Right, right, and right. And the Kingpin, they say he's like five heads tall. His head's bigger, you know. Okay. So, but here with uh, Ramita, the head is small, but the body is just. Ex- like so bloated. It's awesome. I love it. <laughs> and you know, I remember reading somewhere that somebody, some writer tried to establish that the kingpin was actually, it was all muscle. It was not fat. Yeah. But you can clearly see here, this is, he's got this gigantic beer belly, right? So <laughs> but it's it a is, lot of, but it's muscle, Mike. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. <laughs> when you have really strong abs, it forces the belly out. So, you know, there's only one person I know who's like that, and that's the Iron Sheik. I could never figure him out, eh? <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. He had a giant beer belly, but apparently there was muscle there. So I don't know what was going on. Yeah. Uh, and also, nowadays, uh, it's called HGH gut when you got the big abs, but it's forced out. HGH. Oh, really? Would, yeah, yeah. What's, what does that mean? Uh, human growth hormone. Oh. If you take the HGH, sometimes you can get that look as well. Well, you know, I'm taking the HDH. I'm not taking the HDH, but I still have a massive gut, so I don't know what's going on. But anyway, all right, okay. And we Back. we should also mention uh, the kingpin's working out, and he's just in a little pair of shorts, his slippers. Yes, that's and right. A weightlifting belt and weightlifting gloves, but otherwise wearing nothing. Oh, he also yeah. has like a gold chain around his neck too, which is nice. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And we have some very. You know, here's the thing. I've read Frank Miller, most of his run. I know how the Kingpin talks when he's written by Daredevil, but when he's written by Frank Miller. This is different. He's clearly completely different here. Like, I love Innocenti, but he Kingpin here is not his calm, cool self. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, he's a little um, angry. <laughs> he, he, to me, he's more like Scrooge, right? Like, I don't want to like screwed from uh, a Christmas Carol, or whatever it's called. Like I can see he, that. Yeah, he's just like the bad temper and everything. It just doesn't seem like the way that Kingpin would act. But whatever, every writer's different, well, so that's in, fine. In fairness, though, he is uh, during the Miller run. He was kind of in control, and then his plan to end Daredevil failed, so he got pissed. You know, so okay. so it could be the progression of the character that he's having trouble controlling his temper now because his his big scheme, the Born Again arc, failed. So now he's he's still trying to figure out what's going on here, how he can stop Daredevil. And Mike L, they use uh, some very blatant symbolism in this right. scene for how Daredevil is. That so what what do they do here? So as Kingpin is working out, he's got this fly buzzing around him, and he at first he's kind of just annoyed, but then he swings one of his barbells. Then he swings the entire um, what is that called? Like well, first it's the dumbbell, then it's the barbell, right? Then he hits. Uh, which one's the long one? Uh, that would be the barbell. Okay, so first it's the dumbbell, which is the short one, right? And we should mention these dumbbells are loaded with weight. Yes, like hundreds. I don't know yeah, how much. There's but... probably 150 pounds on these dumbbells, and he's right. swinging around. Yeah. So yeah, he's swinging, and then he ends up smashing the glass. Then he ends up smashing the like the what what is he called like the the personal trainer or whatever he is. <laughs> then smashing the bench, and so and then and then it's funny because. Then the guy actually, and this is where Ennocenti's unsubtle writing comes in, where he actually says, "Where's the line?" He says, "You know, you can't hit a, you know, hurt a hit a fly with a barbell." And he's like, "That's it. That's the secret." So I mean, again, right on the nose, right? <laughs> Which 
It's fine, which is fine. Again, uh, again, kid in love. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, we're looking at these as grown adult humans, uh, shut-ins <laughs> in our forties. Yeah, it's. Uh, but we've got to remember these are children's picture books. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so well, they're, they're... I, I won't. I, I will not agree that just because it's got pictures that it's meant for kids, but these are <laughs> clearly meant for kids. There's no doubt. Yeah, about. these are directed at a young audience. And again, this is 1988. Right. You know? Right. Um, so I can definitely to, forget. To put it. that time in perspective. What Watchmen came out in '86, right? Yeah. So, and that really brought in like a deep, like a darker, more um, profound kind of storytelling right. for comic books. So, we're still just getting in that evolution. When did the Dark Knight come in? What year was that? Was that '86 or '85, '86? Yep. Yeah. So we're we're still in the early stages of that kind of comic book sure. film. So, and this and was also for the time. It was more adult, right? Like I'm sure you agree. Like from reading other comics at that time, didn't you feel like Daredevil was kind of a step up, like by yeah. Andy? Yeah, because she yeah. was talking about social issues, you know, mm -hmm. and no other books really were. Right, right. To this extent, at least. But anyway. yeah, yeah. So, so basically, so yeah. So then, so we know he's pissed, and he's got an idea. So now we cut over back over to the Wild Boys, Spit and Jet, and they're. Uh, stealing like stereos and other trinkets from the store loading it into the car and then daredevil intervenes and uh gets into fisticuffs with them and it's a really cool scene well, where they what's that well it's not really he doesn't really punch anybody that's what's funny and no, i was just gonna say that you're expecting it but then they pull a gun and a knife and then he just disarms them with his billy club and then i love this part here where they throw a beer bottle at him but he just Moves out of the way and it passes by him and he doesn't even make have an expression, eh? Isn't yeah, that he just he just like uh, bends his head to the side. He doesn't yes. dodge out of the way. He, you know. I love it. I love it. And then uh, and then he basically just chokes them out. And then it, the scene ends with him saying, "I could kill you, but I also know how to apply just enough pressure to yeah. have you slowly fade out with the image of my face burned into your skulls." <laughs> Merry Christmas, scum! I love it. <laughs> Yeah, he grabs each of them in one hand, uh, one hand on each of their throats, and it kind of shows him lifting them off the ground, right. which is impossible. Well, <laughs> yeah, you're, it's true. He has no superpowers, but he's yes. really strong. But yeah, he's just right. an average dude. I mean, a strong average dude, but still an average dude. You're not picking up a 200-pound man with one hand by the right. throat and each arm. But, you know, whatever. Uh, but I love the art here. Uh, I think Ramita's doing great stuff here, and uh, especially like... Well, there's the one scene where he, they, the wild boys are in the foreground and they turn around to see Daredevil on like the back of the car and he's like hunched over all in shadow kind of. That's a great shot. Yeah. And I, and I like the way he's using the, uh, like the lights, the headlights and the reflections of the lights. Do you, do you see what I'm talking about? Uh, which, okay. It, it's when he first jumps on the hood of the car. Okay. There's a panel that says Womp. See all yeah. the lights in the background? Yes. Like, interesting. Like all flash bulbs kind of going off or something. I don't know. Well, so. you know what? There's actually a lot of that in this issue where the backgrounds are kind of – they, they seem abstract, but you're right. I think they're actually just – it's like it's like if you were to have a camera and the lights in the background were to be blurry, that's what they'd look like, right? Yeah, like reflecting off of shiny objects. But I, I, I love it. It's great. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um. So then basically, uh, what's his name? Eight Ball comes back in, and then they kind of continue the, oh, so then Eight Ball, he, uh, what he wants to do is he's like, hey, well, uh, you know, he figures I can take this stuff. So Daredevil's like, 
That's <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, we should mention that the Wild Boys had the back of their car filled up with stolen goods. Right, right. The stuff that they had from the store, as well as other places, we assume. So they've got all the all these goodies. And Eight Ball just wants to take it. He's like, "Huh? It's loot. It's nobody's. <laughs> it's Give loot. it back. You're nuts." Yeah. And so Daredevil is lecturing him, and Eight Ball is all pissed off. And then Daredevil says, "This is important." He says, "If you spend your days giving to people whenever you can, some of that goodness may float back your way just when you need it most. You get what you give. Try it sometime. You're crazy. Keep your stinking radio and your funny talk, because <laughs> that's the way kids talked in 1988 in, in New York. Yeah, your anyway, funny talk." Yeah, yeah. Keep your funny talk. <laughs> so anyway, so then Daredevil gathers up all like the radios and all the all the trinkets, and then the owners of the shops, who all happen to be standing together on the street, <laughs> yes, they, they come over, and in a heartwarming cr- Christmas moment, they tell him that you know what, Daredevil, I speak for every one of us. We'd like to give all that merchandise to you. Merry Christmas, Daredevil. And then Daredevil says, thank you. I know just what to do with it, right? And we readers know as well, right? But we'll get to that in a few minutes. Okay? <laughs> then we come to my favorite scene in the whole book, okay, where 8-Ball then runs into Darla. And they start chatting it up and talking and, you know, kind of making fun of each other. But then what happens? Darla <laughs> notices there's some dirt on 8-Ball's face. He's like, hey, dirt on your face. Let me. Oh. <laughs> Didn't mean to touch you, <laughs> eight ball. I'd like Darla, and then the next yeah. page, yeah, yeah. He like pulls her helmet over her head, and then yeah. kicks the skateboard, and like she kind of like falls over, and then he's running away, and he's like, eight ball, why'd you do that? Why do you always have to? What you forgot your skateboard? No, I didn't, huh? And it says on Xmas to Darla, for me, it's. For me, it's for me. And she's got <laughs> tears coming out of her eyes. And guess who also had tears coming out of her eyes? <laughs> okay. Little Michael was weeping like a child. You got he... it. Uh, it. Yeah, it's uh, obviously Darla and uh, April are falling in love, but they're they're too little yet to know what that means or what to do. <laughs> so he just pulls the helmet on her head, man, yeah, and then he gives her a skateboard. Uh, but Michael, this is very similar. Uh, to things that happen in Emmett Otter's Jug Man Christmas. So, is it really? Yes, you will be uh, weeping uncontrollably in Emmett I will. Otter. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but I like uh, at the first panel of this uh, scene, um, we see Apol sitting on a stoop, and he's looking at his skateboard, and he says, "Darn man, I got the greatest skateboard, the thrashing best." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. Oh, but if you look closely, he's uh, you can see him painting on it with a pan of the can of spray paint. So right. he's he's putting on the Xmas to Darla thing. So right. that's nice. That and, and then and then we cut to Darla and she's standing in front of a skateboard shop and she's admiring all the skateboards. And Michael, a key point we got to mention, she says that if I had a skateboard like April's, I could do all kind of flips and stuff. And she's considering just stealing one, you know. Ah, OK, like, OK. I'm pretty sure she said, yeah, she's like, I'm going to get one. I'm going to steal me one. And then April says, watch out. You get what you give. Yes. So he's quoting Daredevil. Exactly. He's quoting so he learned his lesson. Yep. I love it. And then he gives her the skateboard. Right. Uh, so now we're back to the kingpin, though, Michael. Right. And this is another scene of unsubtle, containing unsubtle dialogue, but that's okay. Because, um, so basically, um, so Kingpin's got his buddy. This is not the arranger. I'm not sure what his name is. 
but it doesn't matter. But he's like, where is everyone? Uh, home with their family, sir. It's Christmas Eve. Don't mention that word again. It's meaningless. You know, and then it kind of goes on from there. And so they're kind of talking back and forth. And then basically, yeah, there's a subplot here with like some land that someone wants to buy. And they're trying to uh, bully someone into selling their land. Um, and then basically, he's, he's like, Murdoch, Murdoch. So he's still trying to think of how he's going to find, you know, because Born Again failed. And so he's trying to cook up something else to beat him, right? So yep. we cut, yeah, we cut back to the, uh, whatever oh, this oh, is. Mike, yeah, one other important thing out of that scene, uh, that fly is still buzzing around and it lands. Right, and, and he kills the fly. Yeah, he smashes the fly. So right. look out, Murdoch. Yeah. Look out. I also love how instead of just coloring the sky completely black, uh, John Romita Jr. actually took the time to draw black lines in the sky to give it like a gradation, you know? That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, that is interesting. Yeah. I love it. I, I just love it because he doesn't make it, it – it's not realistic. It's just completely, I, I guess you could say, like impressionistic, you know? I, I just really like it. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. So anyway, so now Matt Murdock, now he goes back to his um, whatever this is, soup kitchen type-ish type thing. And now he's got Christmas presents for everybody. So one of the things he – so now everyone's happy to see him. So the first thing he does is he gives for you, 8-Ball, and you can see that it's a skateboard. And 8-Ball says, how did you know? Because, of course, right, Daredevil yeah. knows everything, right? So, yeah. so then, you know, he's passing around the gifts to the different people. And, well, and these are all characters that I think they've been in the last few issues. But, sorry, yeah. what were you saying? They're, they're kind of recurring characters in this uh, yeah. community center. Uh, but notice, Michael, <clears throat> he gives April a skateboard because April gave, so now he gets back. Good point. He, See? He, he, he gave his skateboard. Now he gets one back. And remember, Daredevil told him, if you give to others, you'll get back when you need it the most. Now he needs yeah. a skateboard. Bang. He gets a skateboard. Look I at that. love it. I love it. There's Innocenti's literary background, right? <laughs> and then uh, there, you're going through the gifts. Uh, they're kind of weird. Like he gives this one guy a football. Like yes. like a homeless guy. And then uh, and what I'm, assu okay, I'm assuming this one lady is a prostitute and she gets like a transformer. And it's a Zoid. It's actually a Zoid. Do you, do you remember Zoids? <laughs> no. Zoids were, I, I don't remember if you assembled them, but I had one Zoid. Basically, if you can imagine, uh, it's hard to explain, but they came in pieces, I think, and you have to put them all together. But then when you put it together, you would wind it up and then they, they, they could walk on their own. Oh, so, so like, because when she said Zoid here, I thought it was just an exclamation like uh, no. Zoinks or something like that. J jinky, you know, like Scooby-Doo kind of thing. You know what's funny? Know. It, maybe that is an old expression, but and it, there's a tiny possibility that that's what she meant. But oh, yeah. considering it's a robot, it must be a Zoid, right? I think. Yeah, she literally says Zoid. And if you're saying yeah. Zoid, but does Marvel have like a licensing deal with them or something? They, they had a comic book that I, oh. I'm pretty sure well, slotted in to be reviewed on Flea Market Fantasy. So, <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> Son of a. Why do I let you pick issues? <laughs> I don't know. There you go. You did it to yourself. And then there's another guy who gets a blender, and then another guy gets a little Pac-Man video game. So it's right. a Merry oh. Christmas for everybody. I got to point out quickly, you know that little Pac-Man thing? I had one just like it. It was Donkey Kong Jr., I think. <laughs> but you know those ones where it was it was almost like, a, what's that called? Um, not LED, but like, you know, how, like a calculator. You can yeah. see, the, yeah, the graphics are there. They're just not lit up. Well, that was what my Donkey Kong was like. You could, you would just hit 
the little joystick and it would just light up the different characters and it looked like it was moving, you know? Oh, so much fun. <laughs> anyway. So then basically we cut outside. So this is a very weird issue, but we cut outside and now Kingpin is sitting in his like limousine right outside uh, this thing, which outside there's a sign that says drug hotline, free legal aid, Merry Christmas, right? And so this is Matt Murdock's like little uh, home thing and for like, and, Sorry, go and, ahead. And dig how they're doing the snow. <clears throat> it's like... Uh, it's almost like fix, white out. Yeah, like thick swipes of white out. You know, it's like not just specks. It's like uh, long, but it's it looks cool. <laughs> yes, it's very cool. Yeah, so basically it looks like the art was already drawn and they went over top of this with like white out or whatever it is, right? Yeah, so it's of. really cool. Yeah. And so basically, you know... Kingpin is outside of this thing and he's like complaining. He's like junkies, bums, snotty kids, prostitutes, working class stiffs. That's what Murdoch calls a family. And so he's basically just contemplating. He doesn't understand. I, I did everything I could to just destroy him. But why? Why is he still happy? Why is he still, you know, pushing on? Like, what's wrong? And so basically he's kind of just thinking to himself, what else do I have to do? What else do I have to do? And then he gets to the conclusion. He's like, that's it. There's only one way to destroy a man like Matt Murdoch. Get him where it hurts. Get him right through the heart. But yeah. we don't know what that means yet, right? So that's for oh. a story to come. Well, I know what it means. Oh, you know what it means, right? <laughs> I'm assuming it means typhoid Mary. Well, he. Well, I think it means he's going after the community center. He's gonna. He's gonna ruin those things, right? Oh, see, I was gonna say I thought it meant. See, because I don't know how typhoid Mary um, connects in, but I thought maybe it meant that typhoid Mary was an agent for Kingpin, and he was gonna send her in as like a woman to kind of like. Get him, get to him that way, but I don't know. Yeah, you know what? I can't remember how it all plays out, but uh, I mean that would make sense too. But I'm assuming just from this issue, like he's talking about ruining that community center. Sure. But, well, I guess we'll find out because I'm going to keep reading after this, so we'll see. Yeah, I might too, actually, just to uh, relive the old days. Sure. Uh, but, and I, I just got to yeah, point out, and I love this last little three-panel sequence because then we yeah. cut to the inside point of view of the kingpin with this beggar who comes up to the window and is like, "Mary, Mary, Mister, got a buck." And then burp, hey, man, it's Christmas for heaven's sake. A quarter? Hey, buddy. A dime? And it just says end. Oh, yeah, I, I love it. Kingpin's not giving him anything. I'd also like to point out, Michael, if you look carefully in the back of uh, Kingpin's limousine, his big stretch limousine, there's a box of Kleenex on the back of the seat. That's a good point. Yeah. It's an interesting so either, de detail to put there. It just seems weird that a millionaire guy would have a box of Kleenex. Now, either he has sinus troubles or... Yeah to do something else in the back of that limousine, which is... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that's Merry Christmas Daredevil, <laughs> a.k.a. Merry Christmas Kingpin. Yeah, how about that? So, all right, the uh, writer, Anna Senti, we mentioned many times. Mm -hmm. uh, she was born in 1957. She was an editor on various titles, including Uncanny X-Men, New Mutants, The Defenders, and The Incredible Hulk, which I did not realize. Um, she did not write The New Mutants. She wrote no. one issue uh, for the New Mutants, like a special edition issue, but she did not. But she was the editor on the New Mutants. Okay. If you would ask me, did she write? I'm like, oh yeah, she wrote the New Mutants. No, I knew she was. Yeah, I knew she was the editor of that because she was the one that fired Sal Buscema and hired uh, Bill Sienkiewicz. Oh yeah, she loved Bill Sienkiewicz. She she loved his art. Yeah. yeah. Understandably um, so. A lot of her her creations, her most notable creations, uh, Longshot, who we mentioned, who was an X Men for a while. Um, Mojo, mm -hmm. who was Longshot's um, villain. He was like the big green blob guy. He was in a chair. Right. He controlled another dimension through TV. 
Like he, he just uh, had had the whole society uh, addicted to television shows. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, and Spiral, the six armed lady who right. uh, joined the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Right. And but her greatest creation is Typhoid Mary. Uh, yeah. Oh, I love Typhoid Mary so much. So so much. Now, can I ask you a question before you continue? I don't usually like to comment on a, a creator's appearance, but have you ever seen a picture of Andosenti? Yes. Okay, because she's quite attractive, especially back. In the <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I uh, I did I did some homework and googled a few pictures, and I just sent the best ones to you. But she is oh, thank you quite for attractive. Yes. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Anna Senti. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a kid, the only comic she read was uh, Dick Tracy and Pogo. Really? There's the only comic she had. And then when she got older, she uh, read some Robert Crumb. Okay. Uh, and. But she didn't discover the superhero genre until she answered an ad in the Village Voice and got a gig at Marvel. Uh, the the ad was for editorial writing help, and they didn't say what it was for. And when she called, the lady on the phone like wanted to tell her what it was for. She just said, "Show up, and we'll talk about. You'll talk about it there." Right. Like, just get over here. Yeah. Yeah. So when she hung up, she's like, "Oh well, I'm. This is probably porn, but whatever." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And she said when she showed up at the office, uh, she saw they had cutouts of like, you know, Captain America and Spider-Man. And she goes, oh, all right. I know. Yeah. What this is. But I think it's pretty funny that they won't even tell people it's in comics. Right. Uh, but, um, so her first writing gig was a six page story in Bizarre Adventures number 32 in 1982. And her first regular writing job was on Spider-Woman. In December of 1982, she started on issue 47. But there's a catch, Michael. When they when they hired her for the gig, they said uh, we're ending the title at issue 50. Right, right. So she only got to do four issues, but they brought her in to do it. And at the end, she killed Spider Woman. That's right. Yeah. And like it seems like they wanted her, the editor wanted her to do that. And she says, looking back, it's that's probably why they gave her the job because none of the established writers wanted to kill a character because they realized. She, at the time, she was so young and new in the business, she didn't realize how significant that is to people to right. kill a character. And she said she regrets doing it. And then later on, Michael, they brought Spider-Woman back, and she consulted on the stories. Uh, they brought her back in Avengers 240 and 241, and they consulted with her on how to bring her back. Uh, but did you? I went back and I read issue 50 of Spider-Woman. Did you ever read any of that? I don't think so, no. I don't think so. Yeah, it's, it's not very good. <laughs> okay. uh, but the way they killed her, she was... Uh, having a battle with Morgan Le Fay. Do you remember okay. that lady? She's yeah. like a, a witch or a sorceress sure. or whatever. Yeah. Well, from King Arthur. Yeah. And so she goes into like a, an astral plane with some other guy, takes her into the astral plane and she goes to fight. She has to go back in time to fight Morgan Le Fay. And while she's in the astral plane fighting Morgan Le Fay, Morgan Le Fay somehow gets, uh, kills her physical body. So, okay. Even though she defeats Morgan Le Fay, when she tries to return to her physical body, she realizes her body is now dead and she can't go back. Gotcha. Okay. So that's kind of how they were able to bring her back. She was just on the astral plane and they figured out a way to bring her back. That's smart. Yeah, I suppose. Better than getting, better than getting rid of a character like Spider-Woman, right? <laughs> yes, you can't. They, there's been like 30 Spider-Women. So. Well, you know what's funny? I, I don't think I even knew this until like two weeks ago, but did you know that Spider-Woman had her own cartoon in the 70s? I did not know that. Yeah. Like, as I was looking through my Disney Plus, because I've been watching Spider-Man and his amazing friends and um, 
uh, the solo Spider-Man cartoon. And I'm, I'm clicking through, I'm like, wait, Spider-Woman? Yeah, she, what happened was apparently some other cartoon uh, studio created a, a, com- a, a cartoon called Web Woman. And so Marvel freaked out because they're like, oh shit, we better <laughs> secure the copyright here. So yeah. they created Spider-Woman like over a weekend, just like She-Hulk, <laughs> put up the comic and then turned it into a cartoon just to protect the copyright, you know? <laughs> um, Did you watch it? No, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm going to. <laughs> I heard it's not very good, but. Yeah, um, I'm guessing it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then uh, after she did the Spider-Woman, she wrote the four-issue miniseries Beauty and the Beast in 1985. Now, this isn't the Disney Beauty and the Beast. This is uh, the Beast of X-Men fame and Dazzler. Yes. I, I never read it. Okay, I did read it. Okay, and? It's terrible. It's okay. terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, I went on a kick a couple years ago, and I'm like, I'm going to reread every Innocenti comic. Wow. Not all of them are good, okay? <laughs> yeah. So, I totally forgot that even existed, Beauty and the Beast. And then, uh, but as soon as I read about, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that Beast and Dazzler. And yeah. <sighs> so uh, then, in 1985, 86, she wrote and created Longshot, a six issue limited series. Uh, notably, the art was done by Art Adams. Right, right. Hey, did you see that tweet I sent you uh, about Art Adams and Secret Wars 12? Did right, you see the one page that he inked, yes. Yeah, you can clearly tell it's Art Adams, you know. 100%, it's, yeah. That's crazy. Um, so, yeah, she loved working with Art Adams. Uh, she said it was a great collaboration. They, they really had a fun time doing Longshot. Uh, then she wrote Daredevil for four and a half years. Yeah. It 53 issues between 236 and 291. Mm-hmm. So that spanned from 1986 to 1991. And she also would later contribute to Daredevil 500. That's right. I guess they brought back a bunch of writers throughout the history, and they all chipped in and did something. I don't know. Uh, she left comics in 1991 to, to pursue journalism. Uh-huh. And uh, she also made some films. That's right. She returned to comics in 2012 with DC. Uh, she wrote Catwoman and the Katana series. Right. Did you read any of those? <laughs> okay, I- I read one issue of Catwoman, and I don't remember – let's put it this way. I don't really remember it, but the, the only good thing I'll say about it is, again, it didn't feel like a typical DC writer. So she was still writing in her old style, which might have been good and might have been bad, but I'd have to go back and read it again because I don't remember. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of Anna Senti. Uh, the, the critics will say she's too preachy, Yeah, and, uh, too wrapped up in social issues, and – you know, that kind of stuff. But she was a trailblazer, really, for uh, women in comics. Now, there were previous women who had been writers and stuff. But here in 1988, she's writing Daredevil. I think she also wrote Punisher a little bit. She did some Punisher stuff. Awesome, yeah. So that's that's pretty crazy uh, for that era, for a female writer to be doing that stuff. Right. It's, the only other prominent one was Louise Simonson, right? Yeah, and she was doing, like, Power Pack and New Mutants. And X-Factor. Yeah, which still had... Um, you know, a lot of female characters, but like Punisher and Daredevil, these are Greek male characters. True. Good point. So, yeah. Especially for that era. It's pretty impressive. I agree. Um, and again, she was a longtime editor on X-Men and all. So she she had a profound influence on this era of Marvel Comics. I would right. Say. Right. Um, and he, he, as far as this issue goes, yeah, there's a lot of dopey dialogue and... That, that's pretty much the standard for these issues that we do. <laughs> a lot of dopey dialogue. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It, it, it's dopey in like a different way. Like it's, you know, I can, I've read, again, we've, 
we've covered Roy Thomas, Merv Wolfman, Len Wine. <laughs> they all have that cheesy, campy way of writing. This is this is awkward in a different way, right? Like we said, because <laughs> it's like it, it's like on the nose and it's preachy, but it's not like it's not like Len Wine cheesy. You know, it's not like comic book cheesy. It's different kind of cheesy. I can't put my finger on it, but at least it's different, you know. Yeah, and I, I like the. Uh... You know, the structure of the story and the little, but I hate kids, you know, I'm sorry, but I just, I just don't like kids. That's your <laughs> so, own, that's your own prejudice. That's your own problem. Yeah, kids are the worst. <laughs> could you, could you imagine reading Power Pack? Holy hell. Oh, I love, I'm a fan of Power Pack. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading the whole run. Just anyway. nothing but kids. Anyway. Yep. So, uh, yeah, she does. Okay. The work here's fine. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. Oh, it's okay. I would say again, based on the 80s standards it definitely stands out like um i would probably rather read this than most of the the other comics that were out at that time this isn't like uh now when i went there i want to punch in people you know, yeah like fight scenes you don't get any of that here so if, if you're looking for fights and she said she hated writing fight scenes uh, she actually signed up uh for boxing lessons really and uh, uh, some other maybe kung fu or some some, some other type of fighting because she wanted to get uh, to learn how to fight so she could it would help her write fight scenes better but she said yeah it didn't really help oh, okay <laughs> so basically she would just tell a lot of times she'd just tell the artist uh, there's a fight scene do something cool with it you know and that's interesting, of, interesting. what she did so uh, speaking of the artist John Ramita Jr. yes here we go born in New York City 1963 oddly enough my god I don't know if you're aware of this but John Ramita Jr. is the son of John <laughs> Senior. Yes, I did know that. Yeah, weird the way that worked out. Yeah. And of but course, I, John Ramita Sr. is iconic. He, like when I think comic book art, it's uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of Kirby. I know everyone loves Kirby. Uh-huh. Uh, but I love John Ramita Sr. and John Buscema. They're the two that really stand above everyone else for me in uh-huh. terms of comic book art. I love them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, he's top three. Like, if, for me to be for Marvel, it'd be Kirby, John Buscema, and then him. Yeah. So yeah, he's, he's absolutely so, yeah. Mount so John Romita is a baby boy here. Um, at thirteen, John Romita Jr. actually created the Prowler character for Amazing Spider-Man seventy-eight because his dad was drawing it. That's right. Yeah. And he gave, I actually own that issue. The actual really issue. wow, that's yep. cool. Actually own it. Um, and that was from 1969. Uh, so he broke in to the business. His dad would not help him get into the, like his dad said, Hey, if he didn't want it, he wanted him to be an artist, but he didn't want him to draw comic books. But he said, Hey, if you want to do this, you're going to have to do it on your own. Really? Because, because whatever you do, like everyone's going to think I did it for you. You like, you know, I wow. like, I'm the only reason you're working here. So you're going to have to do it on your own. You're going to have to find your way into the business. I'm sure he helped him out a little bit, like introduce him to people. Uh-huh. But he didn't like pull any strings to get him jobs. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. So he broke into comics by working for Marvel UK titles. And he would do the because the way that it worked out, Michael, when American Comics went to the UK to the Marvel UK brand, they split them into two for some right. reason. Yeah. So that meant you needed to have another cover and another splash page. That's and right. So that's what he he was doing. He was drawing those extra covers and splash pages for the UK titles. So that's have how we start. Have you ever seen a Marvel UK comic? I have not. Because I, I own a bunch. They're, they're, di- they're different dimensions. They're more like the size, the, the, 
the dimensions of like a Rolling Stone magazine or like Inquirer. Oh, you know? okay. And they're they're really thin. They're they're maybe like you said, maybe half as thick. And there there's no cover stock. It's all like all the pages are newsprint. I love that. It's really cool. <laughs> and and the cool thing is is it wasn't exactly half. It was like odd numbered pages. And so if you were to buy like one issue of say Transformers, there'd be half of an American issue. But then sometimes they need to fill like five pages, so they would have new stories there too. So there's actually like a whole library of um, UK Spider-Man, UK Hulk, UK GI Joe that most of it's never been reprinted here. So it's kind of cool. I yeah. Have no idea. Yeah. So uh, his first like real gig at Marvel here in the U.S. was a six-page backup story in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number Eleven in 1977. I think it's something like Panic at the Coffee Bean or something like that. Okay, okay. And he says it's terrible. He okay. Says, <laughs> I should go back and uh, look at it. Um, he first gained popularity on Iron Man from 1978 to 82. He did 27 issues. Yes. Which, uh, that was issues 115 to 156. In that span, he did 27 issues. Right. And he returned in 1991. He did nine more issues of Iron Man. See, yeah. I didn't even know he did Iron Man. Oh, yeah. that's I knew that like all growing up. He was famous for that, yeah. And they're good issues, too. I like them. He was also doing The Amazing Spider-Man from 88 to 84. So that's cool. He worked on the same book as his dad yep. had not worked on. He did 36 issues from issue 208 to 250. And he returned for two issues in 1998. And then he did runs in 2003-4 and 2008-9. That's right. So a lot of uh, Spider-Man work for him. From 88 to 85, he did 32 issues of Uncanny X-Men. And this That's was right. between issues 175 and 211. Now, this is where I first saw his art. Right. He's the reason I got back into comic books. Uh, like I said, I bought issue 207 of the Uncanny X-Men Wolverine on the cover. I bought it just because of that cover. Oh, I, he's cutting the, the cover, yes, right? He's dragging awesome. his claws down the front. And I fell in love with the X-Men, so that got me into comic books again, hardcore. So it's all because of John Romita and that cover. Um, but interestingly enough, Michael, uh, I guess Chris Claremont didn't like his work. This is oh. true. I was going to point that out. Yeah, Chris Claremont was not a fan, and he basically pushed to get him removed from the book, right? It seemed like it's a, kind, it's a little f fuzzy, but uh, it, it seemed like <clears throat> Ramita wasn't enjoying his time on X-Men because his relationship with Claremont wasn't that great. And Claremont, like you said, didn't really like his work that much because keep in mind, this is right after we had God-tier John Byrne doing that greatest run of X-Men ever. <laughs> Then we then we had my guy, my beloved Paul Smith, who yes. was exceptional. Right. And then John Romita comes in and Claremont's like, yeah, well, this isn't as good. <laughs> but I don't know. I loved his X-Men work. I should also mention he was only doing breakdowns at this point in his career. He wasn't yes. doing he wasn't doing finished art. Right. And would you like to describe the difference between a breakdown and finished pencils? Well, it de depends on the artist, but a breakdown can, like, the absolute simplest form of a breakdown can be kind of just, uh, like, I don't want to say stick figures, but one step up from stick figures. Like, you might just sketch in, you know, the hands and the face and the positions of the people, and that's it. So it depends, again, on the artist about how detailed the breakdowns are, but it's completely unrefined and... Uh, it's mostly just getting the storytelling across, right? And the layout yeah. of the page. And then the inker, like, like you know, because earlier on I was talking about, um, you know, like filling in the blacks with these lines. That might have been all Al Williamson. Maybe John Romita didn't do any of that. But even looking at this issue, well, though, you could tell that this is a John Romita figure. So he's probably going in and 
sketching out the outline yeah. and maybe that's it right no not not for daredevil we'll, we'll i'll talk about oh that okay okay yeah. okay so now now so now let me just say one thing a lot of people really crap on john romita for on x-men but i'm always there defending him because he was inked by dan green and dan green is a very sketchy inker so it might have been more him not refining those breakdowns enough yeah we really don't talk about inkers enough on the show because they're very integral to how the art looks that's uh, true yeah like, like go back and if if you're on the internets and you can find me on the twitter i tweeted mike ellie panel or page from secret wars 12 mike zek art but inked by art adams and it looks exactly like art adams drew it right Totally. Especially, especially the She-Hulk and Thing panel in the bottom. It's I would have sworn he drew it, but he just inked it. But that just shows exactly. you how, what a profound influence an inker can have if a writer, if an artist is just doing breakdowns. Exactly. And, and that's yeah. what Zek was doing for that issue of Secret Wars. Right. So yeah, if if you're not liking the art, it's not necessarily the artist. It's also the inker. And if you love the art, it's not necessarily the artist. It could be the inker. <laughs> it's it's totally. very tricky. Yeah. Yep. You're right. And I guess Steve Ditko. Uh, he was kind of infamous for doing very loose breakdowns because when he was doing the art on Spider-Man, like he was doing finished art, but then later in his career, he was just doing breakdowns. So, and since he wasn't doing it all, he, he just was very kind of careless with them. And some sure. anchors hated working with him because he was so loose and okay. they had to do so much work. But uh-huh. uh, Anyway. So yeah, that was his X-Men run and he left X-Men in uh, 19, what was it? 91, I said, or? Um, no, uh, well, he no, that was the second run, right? You're talking about? I'm, I'm, I'm so confused. Oh, from '80 80 to '86, he yeah. was on X Men. So he, yeah, he left X Men right after I kind of got in there. <clears throat> um, now the reason why he left, like we mentioned, Claremont wasn't a fan, but he was taken off X Men so he could do the Star Brand book for Marvel's right. Universe. That's right, with Jim Shooter. Now, yes, the Shooterverse, the new universe. And Jim Shooter did write Starbrand. Uh, most of the uh, those titles are written by Archie Goodwin. Uh, That's true, know. yep. There were eight books that premiered with the new universe. Uh, now, Ramita, I, I saw interviews with him where he said he wasn't necessarily fired from X-Men, but they kind of like moved the pieces around because they wanted him to do Starbrand. So, you know, that's a nice way of saying he was fired. But yeah, sure. <laughs> they wanted him over on Starbrand. Uh, now, Michael, I want to correct something I said when we were doing Secret Wars uh, a couple. I don't think I said it last episode, but a couple issues back when we were talking about Secret Wars 2, for some reason, I said, well, that's how they got the new universe, because at the end of Secret Wars 2, the Beyonder kind of dies, but he creates a new universe. OK, so lives on. That is not true. OK, OK. He does create a new universe at the end, of, but it's not the new universe. <laughs> What is it then? It's just a new universe somewhere else, but it's not Marvel's new universe. As an 11-year-old child, when I was reading it, because at the time they're hyping up this new universe, I'm like, oh, I just connected the dots. Uh, Now, that would make great sense. That uh that would have played out perfectly, but no, that's not true at all. It's actually a separate universe. The new universe for Marvel had nothing to do with Secret Wars 2. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Which is... Which I think they should go back and retcon that, and it would make it a lot better. Yeah, maybe they should. You're right. <laughs> Listen to 11-year-old me, and it would be a lot better. So when I was reading about Starbrand, are you familiar with Starbrand or the new universe at all? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I've read a lot of it. Oh, see, I never read any of it. Well, you're not missing much. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the original idea for the, uh, the new universe was to make it real gritty, to make it real like authentic. 
to the yeah, life the, around you. Like the world it, outside your window. Yeah, yes. that was the tagline, okay, tag the world outside right. your window. But then, so there was going to be like no aliens, no mythos, like weird mythologies, nothing craziness. There's real people, except there's an event that happens uh, one day in 1986. There's a big white flash of light. And from that moment on, certain people in the world have superpowers. Right. So that's like what their take was. But as soon as they started doing the books, Michael, they kind of threw that out the window because like Starbrand got his powers from an alien. Uh huh. And then some other guy was like from the future or something. So it's like they were very inconsistent with their main. Yeah. And we will have to do an episode about this. But I believe also what happened was a lot of the creators completely disagreed with Jim Shooter's concept. So they just ignored it. Yeah, and then they had – there were eight titles originally. Four of them were canceled after one year, and then all of them were canceled after two years. Right, right. And John Byrne went in and took over Starbrand towards the end of the run. Uh-huh. And this was after Shooter got fired. And to, to have a dig at Jim Shooter, because he hated Jim Shooter. Right. Uh, he Apparently, he threw a big party when Shooter got fired, and they burned Shooter in effigy. That's right. They, they made a dummy of them, and they filled it with unsold New Universe copies of comic books. Oh, boy. They earned it. But also to get a jab at them in Starbrand, the city of Pittsburgh was destroyed by a nuclear bomb. Uh, I see. I knew about that, but I didn't know it was a jab at, uh, at that Jim yeah, Shooter. Yeah, because Jim Shooter's hometown is Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah. They hated Shooter, apparently. So, um, yeah, so... Needless to say, when Romita went to Starbrand, it did not work out. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he, he was not happy. He was miserable. And he said he was pretty frustrated, almost to the point where he wanted to get out of comics. Really? But then, Mike L., uh, the editor, Ralph Macchio. Yes. He, he saw John Romita and saw how miserable he was. He says, hey, how about you want to draw Daredevil? Uh-huh. And he said, all right. He said, you can do finished pencils. Ah, okay. Not okay. just breakdowns. And I'll let you know, what inker do you want to work with? And he said, uh, give me Al Williamson. And he said, all right. And Ramita said, oh, okay. <laughs> he didn't think he'd get Al Williamson, but he did. Right. And, and I think they actually worked a little bit on Starbrand together. Uh, so, yeah, Al Williamson and Ramita went together on to do Daredevil. And that was really a perfect match, those two. Yes. Oh, my God, yes. But, For- but when... But when we're watching this Daredevil work here, this is these are Ramita's finished pencils. So he's gotcha. doing everything. Okay. And then Williamson is inking it. Um, but I love the art here. Oh, my God. He, for, if, if you hate John Ramita Jr., you'll love this. Because this is, like, I think people complain that his artwork is too sketchy and scratchy. But with Al Williamson inking, it's just like, uh, now are you familiar with Al Williamson? Uh, yeah. A little yeah, because like, I mean, I'm not an expert on him, but I believe he might have done Buck Rogers for a while. So oh, he's right. kind of a, like a, in the vein of Alex Raymond, who's famous for being one of the most realistic comic book artists, you know, of the, the first half of the century. And Al Williamson had a career drawing kind of like that. He did Star Wars, the daily comic strip for a while. And his artwork is very realistic. And so taking that realistic inking and, you know, putting that over top of John Romita's sort of exaggerated, bulky figures. I mean, it's just a perfect match, you know? Especially for a gritty street-level book like Daredevil. Right, exactly, exactly. It's, it's awesome. 
And he would, but uh, Ramita says this, he loved working on Daredevil. He says it's the highlight of his career. And he loved working with Anna Santi. They were like a true collaborative team. Right. Uh, it wasn't like his relationship with Claremont. And he loved everything about his Daredevil experience. And then right after this, shortly after this, he did uh, the five-issue limited series, Daredevil Man Without Fear with Frank Miller. Right. Which is great. And also inked by Al Williamson. And, oh, okay. okay. And that was the basis of the Netflix show, season one. Definitely. Like, part. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's where they got the costume from. Although the costume did first appear in the Hulk TV movie with Daredevil. But yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess, technically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he loved working on he went to Frank Miller and he said hey hey, Frank you want to do a, a Wolverine um, graphic novel with me and Frank said everyone's doing Wolverine I got something better for you and so he wanted to do the first year of Daredevil so nice. how you got and so they did that and it was only supposed to be like a couple it wasn't supposed to be six issues I, I guess that turns out to be about 144 pages it was only supposed to be about 80 pages or something okay but uh, when Frank Miller, when he was doing the one issue, Frank Miller uh, said, hey, hold on. I want to put a little addendum between issues 17 and 18. So hold on. So then when he sent him the script, it was like the little addendum turned out to be like an additional two issues. Really? So, Hilarious. <laughs> so a little addendum. Six. Yeah. Uh, but he again, he loved working with Frank Miller and he loved working with Anna Senti and he loved Daredevil. So there yeah. you go. So after all that, he also did some Punisher Warzone, the first eight issues of that in 1992. Yeah. He did uh, Peter Parker's Spider-Man uh, from mm -hmm. 95 to 98. He did, that uh, was 28 issues, 57 and 98. And Mike L., Peter Parker's Spider-Man, this isn't Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. This is the Todd McFarlane book. Right. The cheesy title. I, I never knew that. Yeah. So they changed it to Peter Parker Spider-Man. And his art on that, I believe, was inked by Scott Hanna. It is incredible. It could even oh. be better than this, yeah. Okay. Uh, he did 12 issues of Wolverine in 2004, 2005. Uh, and in 2008, he created Kick-Ass with Mark Millar. Right. Yep. And then in 2014, 15, he did 13 issues of Superman. Yep, I got those. They're great. So, John Romita Jr. I... When I think of him, I, this Daredevil, I, this might be his best work. I don't know. I, I, I think it's very Arguably, hard. yes. It's right up there. And, and here's the thing is, John Romita Jr. is one of the few artists who I will pretty much buy anything he does. Like, if his name's on it, I'll read it. So, like, he, and don't you, one thing you forgot, he actually did the two-issue Cable miniseries. No, I didn't notice that because I hate Cable. And okay. I never... <laughs> But yeah, like Cable's first ever series was drawn by John Romita, right huh. when Rob Liefeld was kind of on getting ousted from Marvel because he had already started Image. Okay. So yeah, but yeah, it was a really good. It was written by Fabian Nizieza, and uh, yeah, art by John Romita Jr. It was great. Yeah, but again, without John Romita Jr., I'm never into comic books again, and I love this whole Daredevil run. So he had a yeah. comic uh, role in my childhood. <laughs> it was John Romita Jr. So would you give Cable a chance if it was drawn by John Romita Jr.? No. <laughs> oh, really? Because I just, I hate that whole thing. I I, I hate, X-Men just got so convoluted and so mm -hmm. weird. I hate people coming out of the future and coming back. I just like simple sure. storytelling about, you know, being ostracized from society. Right. <laughs> That's what I like. I hear you. Uh, so, yeah. 
Don't like any of that. All right, Michael. So there it is. Daredevil 253 from 1988 and Asante John Romita Jr. Uh, any final thoughts? No, only that, it, you know, it's just as good as I remember. And I am reminded why I reread it every Christmas. <laughs> it's great. Uh, one out of 10. What are you giving it? Uh, I would give it, I think, a, a typical issue, I would give a seven. This one would give an eight because it's got the added special message that daredevil gives to eight ball <laughs> yeah uh like i said i hate kids <laughs> uh there's no real fighting in this issue and I, I i like fights so it's not a typical daredevil issue and there is a lot of hokey dialogue uh -huh. uh, and how how much someone admires the eight ball darla stuff that'll vary uh -huh. okay. <laughs> say that. some people might think it's too stupid and hokey and some will cry like a child, like my gal. <laughs> but I love the art. Yeah. I, I think this is peak Ramita. Mm -hmm. So I'll give it a seven. Nice. Nice. I was initially going to give it a five. But I'm like, no, I, really, I really do love this art. So yeah. Yeah. And it's Innocenti. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that was our Marvel Christmas issue. And since I get to pick two in a row... Next week will be our DC Christmas-themed issue. You ready for this? Or Christmas with the Superheroes, number two, from 1988. Okay? So Wait, that's, is, an actual, that's an actual title of a comic book, Christmas with the Superheroes? Of course it is. Christmas with the, the Superheroes. So this is an anthology comic featuring many different Christmas-themed stories with many different DC superheroes, and they're all awesome, Okay. Well, this That's is an interesting concept. So how many times, and this was number two, <laughs> so how many years did they do this? Two years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've got both issues. The funny thing is, is number one is all reprint, and then number two is all new stories. I'm not sure why they did it that way, but other yeah. than the terrible cover, this is an awesome issue. But anyway, so what how, we how long are these stories? Like five, six pages each? Or? Yeah, most of them. None of them are full length, so... And, and are we talking like the Justice League people? Yeah, Superman, Batman, there's a few. I can't spoil it, but yeah, Aquaman's in there. Any any really obscure superheroes? Uh, maybe, yes. I would say there's one character in there that you might have never heard of, for sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Man. So Aquaman celebrates Christmas underwater? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> But trust me, it's a good one. This is this, another this, one that I read every Christmas. This, this sounds like something that would be from 1968 or like, you know, not 1988. You know what I mean? Well, this was, uh, I, I think it's because the editor was kind of, he was like a, a, a he was a Silver Age guy. So he liked oh, okay. these throwback themes, themed uh, comics, you know? Yeah, so. it, it definitely seems Silver Age. No yes. doubt. All right. So we got another Christmas and then finally I'll be back to pick an issue. Um, yeah, I really haven't picked one in a while because we had the guests, and then. Well, you. Oh, I guess you didn't pick those issues. No, guests. I didn't. I didn't pick those. Oh, no. look at that. Okay. Well, so I'll, I'll see what yeah, you I'll pick. come up with something good. All right. Oh, and just for the record, the invitation is still out there for uh, cousin Brandon to come back because in a very <laughs> near, a, a, a near episode, we're going to be doing Crisis. Just so you know, so that's coming oh. soon. Well, he did send me an email yesterday uh, where he listened to the show and he said, holy hell, was I drunk. <laughs> yes, he was. Yes, he was. So, 
but he does want to come back on the show, so I'll I'll have to let him know. Good times. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up this week's episode. I guess uh, until next Tuesday, this has been Flea Market Fantasy. See you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.